Trigger warning. Contained within this podcast are observations about disability. Terminology is a thorny issue, and I've used phraseology that has been deemed acceptable by those in the know. But of course, opinions differ, and so what is acceptable to some may not be to others. I've done my best, and none of my words are issued glibly. I've also occasionally used the wrong terminology when quoting or illustrating attitudes from the past. And I may also have done so by mistake. I'd love to have a team of fact-checkers, or a script editor, or an assistant checking the script and then analysing any ad-libs or fluffs or unconscious changes. And were this a podcast made for, say, the BBC, I would definitely have such things. But it's not. It's me, in a cupboard, doing my best. I have also occasionally used pejorative terms for disability when quoting others. I do so not to offend, but to illustrate the nature of some of the words that get used, sometimes unpleasantly. I haven't set out to shock, so I hope that you can accept everything said herein in the context that it is presented. Welcome to Indefinable Magic, the sort of thing Radio 4 would be doing if they suddenly became a channel designed to appeal mostly to middle-aged science fiction fans with a long journey to work. Or a dog. Or who've started jogging again. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. This week, well, they can't get up the stairs, can they? I was on my way to this gay gypsy bar mitzvah for the disabled when I thought, gosh, the Third Reich is a bit rubbish. River Song there, in one typically pithy and sardonic one-liner to underline, huh, understatement of the year, that the Nazis were wrong'uns, by invoking some of the many groups who would have been exterminated under their watch. Nice point, River. Well done, Doctor Who. It's a kind of reverse usage of the disabled lesbian donkey trope that people who think they're clever use when they want to imply that the whole world is conspiring to fill the landscape of comedy and entertainment in the 21st century, indeed, with people who don't look like middle-aged white blokes, just to spite them. I know, what a liberty. So yes, well done Doctor Who for lampooning such silliness, but unfortunately for Doctor Who, that reference there is the only time the disabled, in inverted commas, if there is such a thing, my other half tells me that the correct terminology these days is disabled people, and I bow to her greater knowledge, as she is a wheelchair user and a disability rights campaigner, and all that malarkey. Uh, yeah, it's the only time disabled people are mentioned in the whole history of Doctor Who. Now, yes, there are characters with disabilities whose conditions are mentioned, referred to, or bleeding obvious, but in terms of having the word disabled referring to people with disabilities, then that, I'm afraid, is it. That one line from River Song. In Doctor Who, the word disabled is more likely to apply to transmats, weapon systems, or atmospheric thrust motors. Only three classic series stories, City of Death, Remembrance of the Daleks and The Curse of Fenric use the word at all as it happens and, as I say, never in the context of people. Words like blind and deaf are banded about willy-nilly in a way that could well be interpreted 
as offensive were the archaeologists who wished to hold the past to account for phraseology misdemeanours as protective of the disabled community as they are of other groups, but they are not, and thereby hangs a tale, a complicated one. But at least it means that we don't have to endure endless fruitless discussions about whether Deborah Watling and Jerry Davis were ableist because Victoria asks Captain Hopper and Jim Callum in Tomb of the Cybermen if they are blind because they are missing the obvious, which is surely pejorative. Well, of course it is, but it is also a harmless colloquialism. But it's only harmless, of course, because it's about the disabled. Um, disabled people. People with disabilities. Oh, this is getting complicated. I'm short of words to use to even frame this topic. Handicapped, for example, is now an outdated term. It comes from cap in hand, by the way, when disabled people used to have to hold their caps out to receive a few pennies from any passing person who might toss them a coin or two because, unable to work, they were often reduced to begging. And so the term, as ever, arises from some kind of inference that the problem is with the person with the issue, the disabled person asking for money via said hand proffered cap, than the cause of the problem itself, society not looking after its vulnerable. Times change and so do words. Interestingly, the word handicapped is a late cut from the original final part of The Curse of Fenric, when it was used, ironically, by Fenric in Dr Judson's body. And Fenric is not referring to his corporeal host, who is disabled and was a wheelchair user, but to Commander Millington, who isn't either. And it's used as an insult. I see you are not handicapped by great intelligence. But of course words are less important in this instance than representation. And of course Fenric being set in World War II means that some archaic phraseology is bound to creep in due to authenticity but that brings with it its own complications. And Judson is actually one of the few classic series characters with a disability. It amuses me to note that there is very little in modern-day discussion, which I note as a stuffy old thing often takes place in the tone of an entitled wine or scolding catawall that calls the series out for its disability representation. And I'm actually happy about that, because I don't think it should be. Context is all. Doctor Who was generally a benign show made by decent people, and the world took a long time to catch up on a lot of things. And as with a lot of things it has caught up on, whilst progress has been made in this area, there is still a hell of a long way to go, and so the present day shouldn't pat itself on the back too hard just because it's had a couple of actors with limb difference in recent series, extremely welcome though they are. The television industry is actually, bizarrely, seeing as the arts world considers itself to be pretty hot on liberalism and representation, behind many others in terms of representation of disability, and indeed the use of genuinely disabled people to do that representing. And yes, that's because, unlike other industries, drama and comedy, say, can make positive noises about how badly disabled people are often treated without actually using disabled people to make that point. At least when the BBC did, say, an anti-racist episode of Zedcars, it would use genuine actors of colour to help to tell that story. But only really very recently have disabled artists got to tell their own tales. And whilst the viewing world and social commentators would recoil at a performer blacking up or using yellow face these days, quite rightly so, we still have non-disabled actors playing disabled characters and cries of woke when it is suggested that perhaps they shouldn't.
I'm certain no one would be happy with, say, Benedict Cumberbatch if he announced he was about to play Othello. But Douglas Bader or David Blunkett or, oh yes, Stephen Hawking, well, that might just be award-worthy. Now, obviously, the Hawking comparison is slightly facetious because Cumberbatch needed to play the famous scientist before his disability took hold when he took on that part, but it is nonetheless still seen as a virtuoso and even brave thing to do when a non-disabled, i.e. normal, in inverted commas, performer temporarily assumes the position of the disabled. Now, I suppose I need to give a little context. I was like everybody else some years ago, very sympathetic to the idea that disabled people definitely needed support and should be treated well and were just the same as everybody else, etc, etc, blah de blah de blah aren't I nice, without having a clue about the everyday issues of disabled people, and probably, if I'm honest, not caring, really, unless there was an earnest drama to be made here, or a cutting political joke to be made there, and hooray, the arts had made me feel sympathetic and right on, without me actually having to do anything at all myself. But I have, over the years, come to witness, not experience directly, nor, I'm sure, totally understand, certain issues about disability. First, for example, was when I got together with and ultimately married an old school friend of mine who has a son who is profoundly deaf. It's always hard suddenly becoming part of a family grouping involving a child who isn't yours, and it's certainly challenging when that child has a disability that you have no experience of. But he was and is an amazing kid, and I'm quite proud of the fact that we ended up very much in love with each other, and Doctor Who should take some credit for us having things to do together, and I spent many a happy hour chasing him around wielding a sonic screwdriver, or scouring charity shops for tweed jackets and fezzes and bow ties for him. This Christmas, I managed to get him a signed photograph of David Tennant, as I got a message from his mother, we're not together anymore, but I'm so pleased we're still part of each other's lives, plaintively announcing that he'd suddenly got obsessed with collecting autographs, and how the hell were they going to afford this, as she didn't fancy remortgaging her house in order to facilitate a trip to the third Comic Con of the year. Stepdad, ex-stepdad, is that a thing? To the rescue! Glad I've still got it. Anything to make that boy happy, now as then, and always. And now, seeing the unique challenges that he and his mum had to go through on a daily basis was an eye-opener. And I saw how the low expectations of others, and being perceived as an inconvenience, hugely affects kids like him. Kids with such talent and character, but just manifested in different ways sometimes from other kids, led to him and his potential being overlooked or ignored or patronised. I so admired his mum, and still do, for not wanting to compromise on his prospects because of his disability. Me? Me, I found it easiest just to sit with him, watch Doctor Who and pretend to be a weeping angel whilst he zapped me with one of the 30 sonic screwdrivers he seemed to have acquired in a very short period of time. Even with level 1 sign language, it was still a bit complicated to say, it's just a screwdriver. So I let him zap away, even though, strictly speaking, it's a utility device, not a weapon. But hey-ho, life is about compromise, and is sometimes very complicated. Now he loved Doctor Who, fell in love with it very quickly once I'd poured it into the building's water supply. And soon my new home was full of toys that no self-respecting grown-up Doctor Who fan could justify owning for themselves, but if... Oh, they're for my stepson. Well, suddenly I'm benevolent. 
my disabled stepson, benevolent and bloody heroic. Oh yes, I am not unaware that being seen to be coping with a disabled loved one can sometimes be self-serving and manipulative, even at the same time as being loving and supportive. It is a complicated world. And this bonding, by the way, took place at a time when Doctor Who wasn't especially providing disabled role models. Who am I kidding? It, it never has. But that didn't stop him from falling in love with it. Because it's a magical show of zeal and wonder and adventure. And it captured him because of its universal brilliance. Something worth remembering when we scold the show for not representing this or tackling that. At its best, it represents the child within us all. And that breaks down barriers, rather than segregating us into grudge camps. But no, he didn't fall in love with Doctor Who because it was specifically about people like him. And I would have been hard-pressed to find anyone like him in the show. In fact, until deaf actress Sophie Stone appeared in Under the Lake and Before the Flood, which was after me and his mum split up. They did get to go to a special advanced screening of that adventure in one of those curious cases of Doctor Who entering my world, even one I was now something at arm's length from, whilst being nothing directly to do with me. We all have those, I'm sure. But that's a subject for another podcast. Now, of course, and I actually got into trouble for pointing this out at the time when I was only trying to be factual, there had been other deaf actors in the show. Tim Barlow, who died very recently and who plays Tysan in Destiny of the Daleks, lost his hearing when doing his military service and a muzzle noise caused permanent damage. He would act based on lip reading and even sound vibration and carved himself out a very successful career. Very rarely playing deaf people, actually, but instead relying on his imposing, rangy physique and excellent, cadaverous face to do exemplary work on stage and screen. After nearly 50 years, he got some hearing back, actually, by having a cochlear implant fitted and made a very moving radio show covering this procedure and its aftermath. My stepson has a cochlear implant, something I'd previously really not known much about, and it was only when I entered that world that I discovered that such a thing could be controversial. Some members of the deaf community find the cochlear implant abhorrent, an invasive procedure used to correct, in inverted commas, something, an insulting piece of dangerous surgery to alter someone, to remove the condition that they were born with. It's not we who need to change in order to make it easier for society to understand us and us them, goes the argument from these members of the deaf community, but society needs to improve access and understanding for the deaf. Such intricacies of argument are probably lost and unknown to people outside of that community because, well, we don't talk enough. And don't even get me started on small d deaf and big d deaf because, well, it's complicated and I'm not really qualified to be the one going into detail about that here and now. And yet, of course, I can't escape the irony that I will get no input on this from any relevant listeners because the deaf listenership of this podcast is zero. Now, I could provide transcripts to make this more accessible, but, well, it's a lot of trouble and... To be honest, I hadn't considered it until this very moment. Yes, me, with my deaf stepson, disabled partner and level one sign language. It hadn't occurred to me. So let's see if I can redeem myself via the medium of trivia. Richard Leach, who plays Gatherer Hayde in The Sunmakers, was also deaf, but would astonish his fellow actors by being able to know when they'd stopped speaking and when it was his cue, even if he wasn't looking at them. 
By sheer coincidence, The Sunmakers is a Doctor Who story with repeated use of the word deaf by the Doctor himself in quite a glib way, but it's contained in a scene where he appears pretty unmoved by the fatal electrocution of the poor guard he's querying the hearing of, so that's the least of that scene's issues. One presumes the deaf actor in the cast, Leech, had no issue with the word being used as a pejorative. He probably didn't hear it, snigger one or two of you. Yes, well done. I see what you did there. Like Barlow in Destiny of the Daleks, Leech in The Sunmakers isn't playing a deaf character, and here is where approaches to disability and representation have changed over the years. As listeners of this podcast will know, I'm a sucker for a character actor popping up in Doctor Who several times over the years. And one of the most prolific returning Doctor Who guest actors in its first two decades was a disabled one. But you wouldn't know it from the on-screen evidence. It took me ages to discover. But if you watch the Doomwatch episode, You Killed Toby Wren, it features the actor Graham Lehman, who uses crutches as his character of Professor Wayland a misguided scientist meddling in genetics. And, to coin a phrase, there's no reason for him to be doing so. Well, there could, again, be for subtext. His disability is driving him to meddle with science in order to cure him, that old chestnut. But none of this is mentioned in the script. It's just something that the actor is doing. A little delving, and I discovered that the crutches were his own and not for the programme but I didn't manage to ascertain whether this was a temporary situation caused by injury. See the greatest show in the galaxy's T.P. McKenna with his arm in a sling in the movie Straw Dogs, a result of boisterous backstage partying, or whether the actor had a more permanent condition. But then I noticed something about Graham Lehman's Doctor Who roles, and there are a lot of them. The controller in the Macra Terror, Price, the radio operator in Fury from the Deep, the Grand Marshal in The Seeds of Death, one of the Time Lords in Colony in Space, and the Time Lord seated at the monitor who relays information to the President and the Chancellor in The Three Doctors. And seated there, in that last one, is the operative word. All of those characters I just mentioned are seated. The only question mark I had was about Price in Fury from the Deep, and indeed, when a tiny bit of footage from that story turned up, there is a sign that his character who has no reason to stand up at all during the action, is pulled away and moves from his seat. But as we will discover, that doesn't entirely blow my theory that Lehman was always seated because he was disabled apart, because this is where some of the uh, <clears throat> complication arises. I'll talk about Dortman in The Dalek Invasion of Earth in more detail later, but it's worth mentioning now that I was surprised when I first saw that story to see him rise from his chair temporarily standing when enacting his futile valedictory gesture of defiance and throwing his bombs at the Daleks, who then exterminated him. He's in a wheelchair, I thought. He wouldn't be able to stand. Now, in my defence, I was about twelve. I wouldn't think in a wheelchair now, for starters. That said, I was considerably older when, upon seeing Price, the radio operator, exiting his chair in those fury trims, it occurred to me that perhaps I was mistaken then in my theory that Graham Lehman had a disability. But of course, using a wheelchair doesn't make a person 100% reliant upon it. You can be a wheelchair user and stand up. You can have mobility issues, yet still rise from your chair to move out of shot because there's some malevolent plankton spurting industrial levels of fairy liquid and about to engulf your work area. 
and it is wheelchair user, by the way, not in a wheelchair, confined to a wheelchair, or wheelchair bound. I know, because I asked one. Yet that one, my partner, Cherylee, can rise from her chair and even move a metre or two, or stand up to briefly reach for something. And as it happens, I forgive my not-quite-teenage self, who was puzzled by Dortmund's sudden mobility, having now witnessed how Chez's occasional ventures into the realms of the standing cause utter discombobulation in grown adults, who are at best occasionally amusing in their confusion, but are usually infuriating in their unpleasantness. We even had someone knock on the door once, having seen her transfer from one chair to another to get into our augmented and accessible vehicle, who told me he was going to report us to the social, because she was faking. This, I have discovered, is the default view of disabled people by a large number of observers, that they're probably faking it in order to get benefits. It's a joke one can never fail to be bloody exhausted by, which must be especially galling if you're trying to use a disabled toilet that's been filled with beer crates and office equipment, negotiate a dropped curb that has been parked over, have a word that rhymes with plastic and begins with S shouted at you from a passing car, and have drunken people try to take a ride on your chair, all of which have happened to my partner more times than you'd probably care to imagine, more times than disabled people have appeared in Doctor Who, that's for sure. No matter what an eye-opener it was, and how the appalling behaviour, often deliberately unkind or antagonistic, but mostly just casually, carelessly thoughtless, of others shocked me. I, too, had a lot to learn. Yea, even me, a veteran of deaf stepsonage, and therefore someone who had seen and heard it all. For example, I have occasionally reacted very strongly when people like the man who knocked on, or even dopey media commentators, have inferred that, when she has risen from her wheelchair, my partner is some kind of DHSS duping Lazarus of South Manchester, or whatever. Oh, I've torn them off a strip or two being, of course, nice and liberal and helpful, and uh, fighting someone else's battle for them because they were disabled. Or was I? Well, I just thought I was being nice and correcting a fault, and maybe I was. But as she has very gently had to point out on occasion, I'm also behaving like a saviour, and that is, in its own way, kind of patronising. But of course, she's wrong. I'm not helping her because I'm underestimating her as someone feeble and disabled and in need of my help. I'm helping her because she's a lady. Now, the most celebrated case of an actor with a disability being used in Doctor Who is surely Nabil Shaban as Sill, first in Vengeance on Varos and then in The Trial of a Time Lord probably the original character from the 1980s, to make the most impact. A recurring villain so memorable because of the brilliance of the actor playing him. A repugnant slug capitalist. Elon Musk made of snot. A phlegmy personification of avarice and a joy, no doubt, for any actor to play. It's fun villainy that can trace its lineage back to, say, Olivier's deliciously evil hunchback king in the film of Richard III. Unlike Olivier, though, the actor having fun having a chance to show his mettle to a wider audience, is one for whom television opportunities were doubtless scant at the time. Nabil Shaban has a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta, a brittle bone disease which required him to undergo extensive surgery as a kid and which requires him still to use a wheelchair. Fans of semantics will notice that even the Latin imperfecta is being a bit of a bigot there. 
Latina Prajudicium Est. Shaban's casting in Doctor Who was part of an initiative to get disabled talent on screen and, interestingly, provoked a certain amount of controversy amongst those who championed the idea because, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself here, this stuff is really complicated. Producer John Nathan Turner wrote later that he'd been quite proud of bringing this brilliant actor to the screen and giving him a good part to play. And Shaban certainly revelled in the role off-screen and on. But Nathan Turner's superior felt that the casting was a typical example of othering. The disabled actor was playing a horrible green monster. Ugh, look at the awful disabled person. Pariah, unclean, not one of us. The initiative had been designed to provoke directors to perhaps think about casting, say, a wheelchair-using actor as a bank manager, you know, sitting behind a desk, where the part didn't even have to be a disabled part. They were hoping to showcase disabled talent in roles that weren't even about disability. And yet here was the most prominent disabled performer this week on the BBC, and he's a hissable, booable, sadistic Scrooge mollusk made of Qatar. My current partner, I always say current, I'm not an optimist, was surprised, but not surprised, when I told her about this 1980s initiative to get disabled actors on screen. As a disabled actor herself, uh, she was training as an actor when she was diagnosed, so she's always been very much actor first, disabled actor second. Oh, and she does say actor, not actress, and I'm not going to argue because it's all very bloody complicated. Are you getting this? When she started trying to get TV jobs, it was decades after this initiative, and things were still rubbish. And in fact, every now and again, there was another lovely initiative and a few gigs went out and nothing ever changed. Still, the liberal arts world felt it had done something, and hooray, well done, aren't we nice? Let's hold the last night party in a room three floors up with no lift because, oh dear, we didn't think of that. And of course, as an actor, you'd much rather play an exciting, viridescent space leech than a boring bank manager. But you can see where the BBC boss was coming from. He didn't want to be seen as putting disabled actors into the freaks category. But then hiding a wheelchair behind a desk and saying, uh, this has nothing to do with disability, nothing to see here, whilst you might be giving the actor the work, you are still hiding the disability away, unseen. We don't want to look at that, it says. It might put people off. Perfect. Liberal, decent intentions. Giving disabled actors a good shot and not making it about disability because being disabled isn't everything about a disabled person, yet at the same time erasing that disability, tidying it away, not challenging the viewers with seeing something that might make them uncomfortable. Or, as one writing student asked me about a play I'd written that featured a wheelchair user, I didn't get why they were in a wheelchair because that never really became important to the story. No, sometimes someone using a wheelchair isn't important to a story in the same way that someone's fully functioning legs, 20-20 vision or intact set of limbs aren't important to the story. They are just someone in a story who happens to have those things. There's no such thing as Chekhov's wheelchair. In fact, the hiding in plain sight is what could be called in Doctor Who circles as doing a Lehman. Because after some digging, I discovered that my theory that the aforementioned Graham Lehman had mobility issues was indeed correct. He had MS, 
and clearly some sympathetic directors at the BBC were often on the lookout for parts that might suit someone who can't move about too much, and gave him a call. In 1983, when it turned out that Lehman was absent from his army unit's band's reunion due to his MS, Spike Milligan, whom as an unknown Graham had selected to be part of his unit's entertainment corps during the war, went to pick him up so that he could attend. Graham's son Giles told me that even when pretty much immobilised by his condition, Graham opted to play a corpse in an amateur production rather than totally give up performing. When Graham's character was recreated in the animation of Fury from the Deep and the directors decided to give him a futuristic chair thing, there were a few murmurs online that this was another example of political correctness gone mad, modern producers imposing their current liberal values on a venerable old production by making a character disabled, when in fact those producers were actually simply echoing what had happened in the original, albeit less blatantly, and tidied away. So whilst Graham Lehman was an actor with mobility issues playing non-disabled characters, Doctor Who's fictional wheelchair users have generally been assayed by non-disabled actors doing something now referred to by the thespian disabled community as, and I'm quoting here, so none of that messenger shooting, cripping up. In Hollywood, Dustin Hoffman, Daniel Day-Lewis, Al Pacino, Jodie Foster and many others have received huge acclaim and awards for casting aside their dignity to play the nobly afflicted. Good performance is all, but you probably wouldn't cast them now. Well, some people probably would, but it is getting increasingly frowned upon. So there's no rancour when I point to Doctor Who's cripper upper Dinsdale Landon as Dr Judson in The Curse of Fenric. Of course, the fact that the character needs to rise from his chair when his body is infested by the personality of the evil Fenric means there's a strong case to be made for not casting a genuine wheelchair user. That said, when the Doctor Who spin-off that came from nowhere class, like Doctor Who, cast by Andy Pryor, one of the casting directors most open and proactive in the area of representation of disabled talent currently working today, needed a wheelchair-using character, Jackie McLean, April's mother, then a genuinely disabled actress, Shannon Murray, who was paralysed in an accident aged 14, was cast. Jackie, however, needed to stand for a big moment in the drama in which her daughter April uses newfound powers in order to heal her mother. In this case, you'd say then that as with Dr Judson, it'd be reasonable to cast a non-disabled actor in order to pull off this very moment. But no, instead, special effects were employed to achieve it. If they can be used to create spaceships or aliens or explosions, then why not use special effects for a moment in which a wheelchair user needs to stand? A sign of what can be done. If there's a will, there's a way, and it doesn't have to be up a flight of stairs. And the will was to get genuine disabled talent to play a disabled character, and not let a necessary but temporary plot moment <clears throat> stand in the way. Now, I'm sure that doing that made life a bit more difficult for the production team. But do it they did, because other things are more important. And it isn't something, this moment, that has been banded about or celebrated or discussed in a self-congratulatory manner. They just did it. So bravo for them. In a word, class. Dr Judson, of course, has a disability with an unclear origin. 
but the subtext is there that perhaps the unhinged Commander Millington was responsible for it many years earlier, perhaps when they were at school, which adds some spice to their character dynamic. This is made explicit in the novelisation of The Curse of Fenric. Judson's line, I'm not an invalid, I'm a cripple, is, like the word handicapped, which was nearly used in the same story and mentioned earlier in this podcast, pretty near the knuckle language-wise. Similarly archaic phraseology about sexuality or race would not likely have been tolerated on the show even in 1988, and I'd argue that Ace succumbing and insulting Xiao Yung in Battlefield is manipulated by witchcraft and there to show the evil of such things. But it's a good line, and as anyone who lives with a disabled person knows, reclaiming the language and using gallows humour is part of dealing with some of the sensitivities and frustrations around being disabled. Invalid, of course, used in common parlance in this country for decades, gets its meaning from invalid, and so is now pretty invalid itself. It's a word that we have displayed a lot in our downstairs loo, as Shez has decorated it with stamps and posters and adverts and book covers, using now outmoded language to refer to her community. Indeed, she and I have exchanges at home that would get most TV shows and this podcast shut down. But you see, context is all. And, can you hear me at the back, it's complicated. I suppose Davros, creator of the Daleks, first seen in Genesis of the Daleks, but now an enduring and iconic character from Doctor Who, could be considered disabled. He's a wheelchair user, he's blind, and he only has one arm. Limb difference, that is called, terminology fans. The inspiration, one guesses, is to have someone half-human and half-Dalek, and Davros's quest for a housing unit for his kind perhaps has a more personal stake if he too has been kept alive by surgery and augmentation. Brilliantly again, Genesis of the Daleks is coy about the origin story of Davros's accident, but it's pretty obvious something fairly hefty has happened to him. He didn't cut himself shaving, well, that's for sure. It's interesting though that the joke the Doctor makes, indeed everybody has made at some point, but the Doctor makes it in Destiny of the Daleks, about the Daleks not being able to climb the stairs. Well, that's fair game, we suppose, when aimed at an alien war tank. Aimed at Davros, though, who still looks a bit human? I'm not sure that'd sit quite so well. Of course, no one with any brains uses that joke now, as we know the Daleks can climb and hover. But that's because technology has made the gag redundant before taste ever did. It's ironic, too, that the results of Davros's drive are creatures with very little tolerance for supposed imperfection. The Nazis, who the Daleks are based on, got rid of disabled people quicker than pretty much anyone else. Which is worth remembering if you think that having two or three of them on your telly is going a bit far. Nida's cold description of the rejected mutos, the genetically wounded, as the Doctor more tastefully refers to them, is a stark illustration of the danger and cruelty of seeing non-conforming physiques as inferior. Imperfects are rejected indeed. It's a chillingly brilliant scene. Of course, Davros is hardly what you call a sympathetically portrayed fellow. Genesis of the Daleks is not Doctor Who's reach for the sky or my left foot. I doubt we'll be rolling him out as a role model for disabled youngsters or using him as an example of 
representation in classic television, and he contributes to the idea that disabled means bad. But he's such a well-rounded and well-written and played character that it seems churlish to me to see him as anything but a logical storytelling extension when trying to bring another dimension to the Doctor's best enemies. He's much more of a Dalek chair user than a wheelchair user, even if the cause and outcome, mobility-wise, are similar. That said, the bit in The Witch's Familiar, when he reveals his eyes haven't, in fact, been blasted away into nothing, leaving just wrinkled sockets, but are still there, actually, and he's simply not bothered to open them all these years, nearly cost me a television. Its silliness aside, it may have been an unhelpful justification to the blinkered commentariat for their view that blind people, like all the malingering benefit cheats, simply need to open their eyes and they'll be fine. I'm sure Davros is being reported to the social right now. If that weren't enough, the Doctor then nicks Davros's chair and messes about with it like a drunken reveller. It's a script that is almost heroic in its depiction of the very worst things you can do to a disabled person. Suggest that they're faking it, nick their chair. I presume that the Doctor put that tank in the disabled loo and landed the TARDIS on a dropped curb somewhere on Scaro. Now, of course, there's a fair argument to say it's Davros. Evil, genocidal, Nazi, Dalek creator guy. So he is fair game. But I also have sympathy with the very real need for wheelchair users not to have their mode of mobility seen as a non-disabled person's joyride. And not just that. And in real life, this happens to such an extent that it's an eye-opener, whether yours are bomb-blasted sockets that shouldn't have eyes in them or not. I have seen my partner's chair used as something for someone to horse around it, something for someone to lean on during a conversation, a conversation the leaner was having with somebody else, not with Cherylee, upon whose chair they were taking the weight off their own feet with, or something to hang a stranger's shopping bag and or coat off. In a less TV-endangering moment in another Dalek story, Remembrance of the Daleks, the Doctor chooses to bury the Hand of Omega in a graveyard presided over by a blind vicar, played by the mighty Peter Halliday, an actor whose vision was 2020. Again, this was a time when scouring equity for the genuine article was less important than getting in a veteran actor who could turn up on the day and pass muster and I can't think of a Doctor Who fan who wasn't happy to see the estimable Halliday pop up once more in Doctor Who after his years of great service to the programme. Unless, of course, there are any partially sighted Doctor Who fans who were actors in the 1980s who could have done with a telly job, in which case, well, I'll bow to their umbrage. Elizabeth Rowlandson's blindness in Battlefield is, I think, very sensibly and sensitively handled. It's well played too, albeit by a sighted actress, the wonderful June Bland, and it's there to illustrate the multifaceted nature of our villainous witch, Morgane, who casually reduces our likeable French helicopter pilot Lavelle into hooverable form, but who cures Elizabeth of her sightlessness as payment for a few pints of beer for her guffawing son. Seeing as lemonade is a fiver in the battlefield universe, it seems like a reasonable rate of exchange. One imagines Morgane in prison come the adventure's end, healing an inmate's athlete's foot for a roly, or clearing up their eczema for a fumble in the showers. Why has no one thought of that in New Adventuresville? I find that grace note in Battlefield rather sweet, but again, I'm not disabled, and I know the idea of a cure, as I mentioned earlier, is offensive to some. 
My partner, I know, is more alert to these issues and their portrayals in the media, but to be fair, that doesn't mean she doesn't have her own. Well, I'll call them blind spots, if only to highlight the complexity of discussing these subjects and the many linguistic pitfalls involved in so doing. For example, when we started watching the TV series Daredevil together, I said, Oh, you'll like this. It's about a blind superhero. Yeah, have they got a blind actor to play him then? She said, knowingly. And right on cue, there was a protracted, one-take, no-cuts, fantastically choreographed and complex fight scene involving said character and multiple felons. No, I said, and that is why. But, you know, I knew where she was coming from. We all have our hill to die on, and on the way up to her particular hill, my partner will very much be aware of how traversable it is or isn't using a wheelchair, and if any of the signs are in braille or not. But just in case we haven't fully established it yet, it's clear that this is all a bit complicated. Now, the very existence of this podcast might open me up to some criticism. Why are you doing a podcast about disability when you're not disabled yourself, Toby? Well, because it's interesting. Because one can have an opinion on something without being that something. And because this is Toby Haydoke's podcast and the only person on it expressing an opinion is Toby Haydoke. Now, if I'd been asked on This Morning or BBC Breakfast to talk about disability, I might point out that there are several thousand people they should invite on before me. But the only person invited onto this monologue is me. And we need to get away from the idea that someone isn't allowed to talk about something one has no direct experience of. No historian alive today has experience of the Battle of Hastings, but I'm sure a great many have informed opinions and interesting perspectives to give. Besides which, and here we go. Ah, I have recently had a diagnosis for neurodiversity and I'm awaiting an assessment for ADHD. Now, does that make me any more qualified to talk about wheelchair access or audio loops? Of course it doesn't. It's like someone saying, of course I should be the spokesperson for the Windrush generation. I'm Chinese. Now, in this day and age, I know that if I choose to, I can, thanks to this recent development, give myself the label which I can use to open doors, but I'm in two minds about this. I don't think any frustrations in my own career are as a result of whatever malfunctions are going on in my noggin, certainly not like some physically disabled folk I know, and indeed some neurodiverse performers with symptoms more profound than mine. So I'm reluctant to employ the label, lest it be seen as another example of this modern malaise of every middle-class wanker needing to have something wrong with him in order to be given a job in the arts. Other people I know have said the opposite and are very sympathetic. I'm not so sure. Time for that line about it all being very complicated again. But I think that this tract is really about physical disability. Anyway, it's about difference. And that's complicated enough without getting into the area of mental health, although, once again, I note that many of the most ardent everyone from the old days was racist, and here's a piece of phraseology I have mined for the worst possible interpretation and anti-great and they-awful types, throw the words mental and bonkers around to describe a story that's daft or a character who's off the wall in a way and to an extent that they wouldn't dare use casual epithets about race or gender. 
which is why I'm always cautious of those who sit in lofty judgment of others on such matters, particularly those involving vocabulary or expression, because we are only a sentence and a couple of years away from being caught in that trap ourselves. In terms of neurodiverse issues, though, Tommy in Planet of the Spiders is probably that story's best character, and one who benefits from a superb performance from Shakespearean actor John Kane. There is no doubt that producer-cum-paragon-of-virtue, paragon-of-Buddhist-virtue, no less, Barry Letts, saw Tommy as an innocent, decent person, wrongly judged by the so-called normal people. Tommy, you're just like everyone else, says Sarah, when he becomes <clears throat> one of us after the spider crystal has cleared his mind. I sincerely hope not, he says brilliantly. It's probably the best line in the thing. But Tommy is kind of cured, which goes back to the cochlear implant paradox. Why is Tommy's life any better? And why is he any better? Because he's been normalised, in inverted commas. Well, because it's a kids' tea time TV show, and at least it has a positive portrayal of a character with special educational needs. And to be fair, people from the West Country could be just as offended as disabled people, seeing as that Tommy loses his West Country accent too when he suddenly becomes clever. But it would be disingenuous, I think, to see Tommy as anything other than an attempt to do something positive. But as issues of representation have become more nuanced, so such storytelling requires much more careful handling and can seem odd, naive or misplaced in retrospect, however good the intentions. But let's not go crazy. Ah, see, there's another, but I can use it now. Regarding matters of mental health when looking at disability and Doctor Who, otherwise we'll be having to talk about unstable base commanders and we'll get very repetitive, much like season five. No, the first description of a physical disability is in Marco Polo, in which eccentric actor Tutti Lemko augments his performance as dodgy bandit Kuitju with an eye patch. Often scars and missing limbs are used to represent that a character has led a violent and rackety life, but has nonetheless flourished. But they rarely flourish in a benevolent way. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that have lopped their eye out or lost them a leg tend to turn them into sadists or wily villains. These days again, that's something to be mindful of, using disability as a shorthand for baddie. But for Lemko and Marco Polo, however, it was what was called in the day character acting. Lemko's performances could often be described as eccentric or colourful, and such committed thesps were not averse to all sorts of decorations to make their supporting roles more memorable. It's not really anything to do with a comment or otherwise on disability. It's to do with dialing a performance up to 11. I mean, he doesn't stop at the eye patch. He has a monkey as well. And in fact, Lemko was in Doctor Who three times, and you only saw both of his eyes in one of those performances, in the Crusade, as when he plays Cyclops in The Mythmakers, he is similarly ocularly afflicted. Though, to be fair, that is definitely in the script. He isn't doing a Darrow. Ah, yes, Paul Darrow, famously asking if he could play Tekka with a hump in Timelash, in another example of disability passing for acting that has been a favourite of vividly inclined thespians since time immemorial, or at least since Laurence Olivier played Richard III. Now let's leave aside whether Shakespeare's Richard is a piece of political propaganda and or historical inaccuracy. The king's deformity is all over the text of the play, 
and so when filmed, Olivia's lizardly leering, pinched voice and hobbling gait, all mimicked by body double Patrick Troughton when director Olivier was lining up his camera shots, don't you know, became what many now call a Richard III performance. Richard III acting. And Richard is definitely a baddie. But boy, he's lovable. He's a funny baddie, even though he's literally and figuratively twisted. But it's another depiction of disability as a trademark of, or even motivation for, evildoing. Shakespeare had other things to worry about than disability representation, to be fair, and it wasn't high on the agenda hundreds of years later when Olivier was bringing the bard to the masses in celluloid form. A laudable endeavour and done indelibly, but it definitely helps to cement the screen tradition of differently shaped bad guys, whether it means to or not. And, of course, as bad guys go, High Priest of Sacrifice Tlatoxel in Doctor Who's The Aztecs is pretty unpleasant, the local butcher no less, and his shambling deportment, slightly curved posture and snarling delivery owe more than a little to Olivier's crookback. But again, this is a performative image rather than a comment on any condition. But it's all part of what has helped entrench malformation in our subconscious as something untrustworthy and different. Ironically, a dislike for the unlike, that Doctor Who roundly condemned the Daleks for a few weeks before the Aztecs was broadcast, and in perpetuity thereafter. But whilst Kuichu and Tlatoxel's actors were adding a few layers of colour to the characters they were portraying, the first proper representation of disability in Doctor Who has got to really be the aforementioned Dortman in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. His chair is referred to in the dialogue, and there's a subtext that his condition drives his actions. Terry Nation, the writer, had a great instinct for stuff that seemed kind of cool from war movies. Germanic names, for example. Indeed, I've never come across anyone called Dortmund, but Dortmund is a city in Germany and is so evocative of the war films Nation liked so much. He also, Nation, uses scars and eye patches and lost hands replaced by laser ones to depict a kind of funky villainy. I mean, Guy Crayford in The Android Invasion has an eye patch for... um, no discernible reason the plot can make sense of. It's all a pretty flimsy part of the Kral's plan to convince him that he got torn apart and that they put him back together but lost an eye. A rather convoluted plan which has a water tightness threatened only by Crayford, I don't know, taking his eye patch off at some point or washing his face one day. Even wearing an eye patch, you still know you've got an eye. You don't forget you've got a hand when you put gloves on. No, the reason Crayford has an eye patch is because Terry Nation thought his baddie would look cool with one. This is nothing new. There's a reason a lower low spot on parody of film Nazis hair flick has a limp and a cane. He wouldn't have looked out of place with an eye patch himself. And that's because having a scar or injury from battle and surviving is a shorthand for hard-ass. And being hard somehow makes a character's cruelty more tangible, more hard-hitting. It also, in the psychology of simplistic drama, provides motive. This person has been mentally twisted by their physical deformity, not too big a leap for a lot of dramas, that this explains why they are so cruel. It's another thing my disabled partner sighs at in dramas. The person with the burnt face being a bastard. Hello, Magnus Greel. Oh, 
What are you doing over there, Sharis Jack? But at least you're nice. But you're nice despite your cruelty. You're beautiful underneath the ugliness. Yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's brilliantly done, but it's from that school. And we will get to some more of these later. Dortmund's physiognomy is unsullied, but he has been less fortunate from the waist down. And the drama doesn't explain his plight. He is not an unsympathetic character. Although there is a suggestion that his zeal to get things right is a flawed one, and his brilliant bombs turn out to be as useless as he is. That's the subtext wording, not mine. Also, he does kind of guilt everyone into going on a, it turns out, deadly mission that he can't. In our darker moments, it's what me and my partner refer to as playing the disabled card, pointing out your disability in order to get something you want. But she tends to only use that if she is, say, comfy and needs me to reach for something, like a saucer, rather than because she is, say, an underground mad scientist who wants me to suicidally attack something, say, a saucer, a Dalek saucer. What we are to infer from the depiction of Dortmund is that he is somehow making up for his physical infirmity a little too much, and that is what makes him blind ah, to caution. There is also, it has to be said, an interesting echo between his shape and that of the ultimate manifestation of his wheelchair, a Dalek casing. And he certainly has a place in Nation's developmental family tree that's branch eventually spouts at Davros. One of the myths about the Daleks is that they were operated by small people. I mean, they were operated by small people, but not by um, small people. Now, this is where more complications arrive. Occasionally, I have interviewed people who worked on 60s TV, and they have referred to such actors with a term I shall now refer to as the M-word. Not offensive then, but definitely offensive now. Which is why when I recently wrote an obituary for Gwyneth Powell, who played Mrs McCluskey in Grange Hill, I chose not to invoke the nickname given to her character, whose Christian name was Bridget, by the pupils. The M-word that rhymes with Bridget was in common parlance in the 1980s, but is not one welcomed, I'm told, by people of restricted height these days. In fact, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to use the phrase people of restricted height. Anyway, listen. I know about the M-word because one of my partner's closest friends is such a person. Oh yeah, they all know each other, the disability crew. I mean, they don't actually. But these two do. And close proximity to my, now, friend has taught me a thing or two about that community, so often the subject of lazy jibes, thanks to their presence in Panto and the like. Ewoks, Oompa and Time Bandits aside, opportunities for very capable actors from that community have been limited, restricted even, so I can only imagine how furious they must have been when, having waited all their lives for someone to make The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, stories awash with good parts for such people, they decided to cast six-foot-one Welshman John Rhys Davis as Gimli the Dwarf. A dwarf, by the way, is also a word banded about inaccurately and sometimes offensively, so I will only use it when referring to fictional literary works or characters and not real people. And if we pat ourselves on the back for making progress, it's worth noting that in the 1971 Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, you can see a couple of chumblies, Angelo Muscat and Pepe Poupet, amongst a dozen or so small performers playing the Oompa Loompas, 
whilst in Tim Burton's remake, just one actor, Mr Sin himself, Deep Roy, who at 1.32 metres is at least in the right ballpark height-wise, plays the entire movie's contingent of Oompa Loompas. Great for Mr Sin, of course, but it must have left the rest of Equity's sub-four-and-a-half-footer community wondering what the hell they have to do to catch an even break. And now, the first thing we hear about the remake of Time Bandits is that the eponymous characters will not, as in the original, be played by small people. If I was part of that community, I'd be beginning to think it was some kind of vendetta. Yet as far back as 1965, small people were having opportunities, including in early Doctor Who. Not inside the Daleks, despite what many actors who worked on Who in the 60s might claim, but inside the next breed of robots that some people, rather optimistically, let's be honest, imagined might be their successors. The actors playing the Chumblies in Galaxy 4 were all recruited from, and I'm quoting the phraseology of contemporary documents here, Lester's mini-stars. Mini-stars wasn't the only M-word Lester's used to describe their roster of talent, by the way. There was work to be had for sure for these guys, and their names pop up a lot. Tommy Reynolds, he's also the troll doll in Terror of the Autons. Harry Dillon, not a chumbly actually, but Kublai Khan's cupbearer in Marco Polo. And the majestically monikered Pepe Poupey were all touted around for various shows requiring diminutive performers. But there was a darker side to all of this, and a story as old as time itself. Angelo Muscat was another chumbly, and he later famously played the butler in Patrick McGowan's seminal series The Prisoner. And apparently when Leo McKern, working with Muscat on that show, discovered how much of his co-star's money was being siphoned off by his unscrupulous representation, he tried to get the actors' union equity involved. The days of the circus may have been on the way out, but acts of exploitation continued to be very much the order of the day. More recently then, the casting in Doctor Who of actress Rachel Denning as Erica in The Pyramid at the End of the World, whose husband has broken her glasses and who wanted to be a bus driver before becoming a scientist, is one of those quietly brilliant bits of progressiveness that Doctor Who, at its best, does so well. There is an actress not being hired because of her physical type, not there for a quirk or to represent a very important piece of subtext, and better still, not there to be stuffed into some costume to play a cute alien, but just there, playing a real character with a job, and both of those things are more important than her type. Doctor Who leading the way again, but not with a bang or a lecture, but with a countdown to the end of the world, involving a smart, witty and brave scientist who just so happens to be a small person. And this is not referred to once in the script. We live in a world, remember, where the mere presence of such a person on television can be seen in some quarters as some kind of politically correct imposition. And not only that, in some quarters where prejudice has been actively addressed, mocking small people is sometimes given a pass. I know of some hugely anti-racist comedians, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic types, who very recently would have thought nothing of doing jokes about small people. Using the M-word. Ah, it's just harmless. They're so funny, aren't they? They're in Snow White, they're in Panto, and crucially, they're not often in the audiences of comedy clubs. Well, maybe there's a reason for that. We are now very rightly attuned to the insidious nature of racism. 
and how normalising it through lazier stereotypes in comedy can directly lead to it becoming accepted in everyday conversation and attitudes. And so fortunately, that kind of thing has largely stopped, certainly the blatant racism of the old-school club comics. But before we pat ourselves on the back, it's worth considering that some harmless jokes which dehumanise other marginalised members of society and make othering them seem acceptable still abound. And they're done innocently, for fun, by nice people. Sorry if I'm being complicated. The one classic series named major guest character of whom we do not have photographic evidence is Dom Isigri from The Space Pirates, played by noted Shakespearean Esmond Knight. No one seems to have been that bothered about this story, with publicity photos captured from the first instalment and that was about it. Telesnapper John Cura had died, so he wasn't capturing the televised images, so by the time Knight fell into proceedings in episode 5, no one was that bothered about getting any evidence that he had done so. With the episode subsequently wiped, we cannot now see Dom Sigri, which has a certain appropriateness, as Knight himself couldn't see especially well either. He was another disabled performer, as a result of being blinded during the Battle of Denmark Strait. A shell from the German warship the Bismarck exploded, having passed through the bridge of the HMS Prince of Wales, upon which Knight was serving, and he was hit in the face by burning shrapnel, losing one eye and most of the sight in the other. For a while, he was completely blind, dictating his autobiography and acting on radio. But in 1943, a groundbreaking operation restored some of his ability to see out of his remaining orb. He was able to return to acting, and Olivier gave him a major role in Henry V as cantankerous Welsh soldier Flewellyn. And so, 20-odd years later, he was well known enough to become one of the few disabled performers to appear in classic Doctor Who, even though history has blinded us to his performance. He isn't the only actor with sight issues to have appeared in the show. Lawrence Payne, Johnny Ringo in The Gunfighters, Morix in The Leisure Hive and Dastari in The Two Doctors lost the sight in one eye when filming a sword fight for an episode of Sexton Blake, whilst Gordon Richardson, Squire the Farmer in Doctor Who and the Silurians, was a colourful character and friend of Quentin Crisp, who had a party trick involving leaving his glass eye in surprising places to shock his fellow actors. I have heard similar stories about Philip Bygan Locke too, but have been unable to confirm them by Zeus, whilst Anna Barry, Anat in Day of the Daleks, owes her casting in the show to an ocular injury. She had been in a car smash, thanks to a drunk driver smashing into her vehicle, which caused her to lose the sight in one eye. The minor scarring she retained was noticed some years later by a makeup artist to whom she told the tale, and said makeup artist then told her partner, who just happened to be looking for someone to play a pretty hard and matter-of-fact-about-major-trauma kind of character who is a resistance leader in an episode or two of Doctor Who. The new series has very much upped its representation of actors with disabilities, but even so, it's interesting to note that the first majorly disabled character in the Russell T. Davis iteration of Doctor Who was evil cyber-creator John Lumick. 
Roger Lloyd Pax, mad scientist, having a mobility chair, means that the series now has the unfortunate coincidence that both of its most famous part robot nemeses, the Daleks and the Cybermen, are the creations of crazed wheelchair users. Bloody disabled people! Give them an inch and they create unfeeling cyborg murder robots intent on destroying the universe. Yeah, it probably started with wider doorways, you know. When 1965's single-minded, flawed and ultimately misguided Dortman still remains your most positive portrayal of a wheelchair user, then maybe there is still some work to be done. The appearance of the mighty wheelchair-using actress Ruth Maidley in the trailer for forthcoming episodes of Doctor Who is definitely a positive sign. That said, Lloyd Pack's casting could be cleverer than we think. His most famous character, Trigger, in Only Fools and Horses, is well known for a famous scene in which he describes replacing the different parts of his broom over the years, the implication being it isn't really the same broom because every bit of it has been replaced. It could be interpreted as the road-sweeping equivalent of cyber technology, substituting damaged parts with funky new replacements until no trace of the original is left behind talk about a brush with the Cybermen. And to be fair, Lumix's wheelchair was a last-minute expediency after Lloyd Pack had hurt himself and needed assistance. And if you're thinking, but so what? Disabled people are a small section of society, and there aren't that many disabled actors, and it's just a programme, so why is that even important? Then let me point out to you that when Ruth Maidley joined Doctor Who in audio for Big Finish, where one could argue you actually have an excuse not to cast a disabled actor as a disabled character because you can't actually see the chair. They fixed her up with my partner, Cherylee. Huh, you wait for a Doctor Who wheelchair user and then two come along, at once. Thank God they didn't head to the studio together. They may all know each other, but they don't all live in the same house, as London buses and cabs tend to only be able to fit in one wheelchair at a time. Anyway, even... A friend of mine on Facebook, uh, bear in mind that my Facebook friends are often people I have never met but who have a stand-up microphone or a TARDIS in their avatars, sounded off quite strongly about how the presence of Ruth Maidley as Hebe, the Doctor's new companion, was political correctness or wokeness, take your pick, too far. Because the only reason to have a disabled character in something is, of course, to bow to the fascistic demands of the metropolitan literati who want to wake people to death. Or something. Never mind that Miss Maidley is a highly acclaimed actress with many leading parts under her belt. Putting a disability into a drama can only ever be an issue. Disabled people are walking, well, not always, but you know what I mean, talking issues. I remember a friend of mine, an actress with limb difference, being asked on some god-awful morning chinwag show to make the case for disabled representation in drama and for disabled actors to be playing disabled characters. Her not unreasonable point being that so many roles are cut off to disabled actors anyway that maybe the actual disabled roles should therefore prioritise the genuine article rather than being seen as virtuoso point opportunities for all singing, all dancing A-listers. The half-witted contrarian they'd hauled in to give the counterpoint of view's intellectually watertight response was to ask my friend if she thought Paddington should be played by a real bear. That's where the debate is. Now, in the 21st century, disabled people are on a par with fictional talking Ursidae. From Darkest Peru.
We've had two actors, actresses. Oh, I don't know which they prefer. And one might prefer one and one the other. How complicated is this? With limb difference in modern Doctor Who. Rhiannon Clements playing Bescott in Ascension of the Cybermen and Nadia Albina as Diane, Dan's potential girlfriend, in Flux. Both have excellent credentials elsewhere, but that wasn't enough to stop the Daily Telegraph from opining in its review of Flux that this was box-ticking. That's right, a national newspaper couldn't see anything beyond an agenda from the simple act of representing a sector of society via the use of small roles in a television programme. Aren't limb-differenced people allowed to be girlfriend characters? Or aren't we supposed to see them at all? It's almost as if the reason these communities occasionally have to lobby or call for change, which I know some outside observers see as annoying, is because the mainstream media characterise basic rights as some sort of bloody liberty. Without giving oxygen to the egregious Alison Pearson, it was she who wrote in the same paper, The Telegraph, that the presence of the delightful Ellie Simmons in the recent series of Strictly Come Dancing was a two-step too far. And The Sun's recent cha-cha chair headline at the fact that wheelchair user Sophie Morgan might be in the next series of Strictly is a depressingly unsurprising piece of evidence that we're still in the schoolyard when it comes to some of this stuff. That said, it's with a certain level of wry amusement that I note that in the very next story after Flux, Dan, for Larks, is sporting an eye patch and a hook whilst dressing as a pirate, which suggests that when he and Diane have been chatting at work, he might not have picked up on some of the subtleties of disability interaction. I mean, if he's in love with someone who has the lower half of one arm missing and then wears a hook for fun, then that is kind of the equivalent of me going to a fancy dress party as Ironside. You see, this is why I'm always cautious of receiving or delivering a lecture, because even those with the best intentions, as the team who clearly wanted Diane to be an important, heroic and benign character definitely had, can be so bizarrely blind, deliberate use of that word there again, to the issues in the very next production block. But you know what? I prefer to think that people's intentions are pure and in the thick of making a TV show, all sorts of things get overlooked. And Doctor Who isn't the only one. In a recent episode of a detective drama I was watching with Shirley, the team behind it very thoughtfully had one character, a supplementary witness in this case, only required for a couple of scenes in her own home, played by a wheelchair user. Great, giving screen time to a good performer who has likely had limitations put on her opportunities, normalising, horrible word, the existence of disabled people in everyday situations, well, everyday murder investigation situations, and doing it without comment, without it being important, without it being a thing. It was thoughtful, subtle, good. Well done, everyone, I said to Chez, who was pretty much there too, except that as I was dishing out the gongs, our two detectives were now leaving said character's house and doing a bit of exposition as they trotted down the steps that led to her front door. Oh, not a ramp in sight. Someone hadn't had a word with the locations department. The path to good intentions. But look, representation is important. I don't know if you know, but when Carrie Burnell, a presenter with limb difference, was introduced as a presenter on CBeebies, there were scores of complaints from horrified parents. And that's right, people who are allowed to vote 
and who teach children how to navigate this world, thought it was beyond the pale to have someone who, by a circumstance of nature, didn't have a fully formed right arm. This would be scary for the children, said these parents, without ever thinking why it might be scary, which might be because they've not been exposed to such people very often, because they're obliged to hide away. And I reject that premise anyway, as does history, as it turns out that children aren't quite so judgmental as adults, and if they see a disabled person early in life, and have the realities of such things explained to them, very simply, we are not all born the same way, see, wasn't that hard, was it? They get over it very quickly. So the complainers, ironically, made the case for the existence of the very thing they were complaining about. Why are they putting more disabled people on the telly? So people like you don't think it's weird. And you know, once this sort of thing happens more and more, 20% of the population are disabled, you know, so Doctor Who and everywhere else still has a lot of catching up to do. Perhaps one might bulk less at a disabled villain. Perhaps even jokes that include disabled people will make people think twice, to the point where actually joking with and about disabled people might again become acceptable because it's not based on prejudice. Unlike now, where there's a lot of othering going on. And now, yeah, I joke with my other half all the time because, well, context. Nuance. I do awful jokes at home. It's part of our dynamic. Put the kettle on, she says. Won't go with my outfit, say I, to much hilarity. Mostly from me. The joke being, of course, that it isn't funny. And it's repeated to the point of being annoying. She could well cite it as grounds for divorce, and on paper it would look pretty irrefutable. You really do have to be there. I mean, it's not any better if you are there, but that's not the point. And another is when I'm busying myself about and she says, Is there anything I can do? And I always reply, Well, you shit at hopscotch, or nothing involving a high shelf. Is that because I'm prejudiced against disabled people? Oh, get in the sea. Of course I don't hate the disabled. I kiss the disabled. Well, you know, one of them. I let the disabled, well, one of them, have my last Rolo. I love the disabled, again, just that one, more than anyone else on the planet. And so, if you did some of these jokes to her, it wouldn't be the same. As I may have mentioned once or twice, it's complicated. It's interesting that in the current discussion that vexes folk about the Doctor Who story, The Talons of Weng Chiang, the righteous are much more obsessed with John Bennett's face, he plays Lee Sen Chang, than Michael Spice's, he's Magnus Greel, Weng Chiang himself. Now, John Bennett's yellow face would of course be totally unacceptable today, and it's quite correct that we should think about this story in terms of race and representation. Oh, there's a whole other podcast in that, and I've done one. So let's park it for now. For me, Talons is a brilliant script and production, despite my unease at a now, thankfully, unacceptable practice. And I can also enjoy it despite a nagging discomfiture about a relatively common trope in Doctor Who. Facial difference equaling villainy. Now, I've mentioned scars and missing limbs already, a sign of surviving horrific violence which, if you are my enemy, makes you seem harder, scarier. But such things are not always so cut and dried, of course, and right back to the Phantom of the Opera, it seems that we are supposed to both fear and sympathise with such poor, 
in inverted commas, twisted souls, forced to lurk underground or away from common sight because of the shame of their facial disfigurement. Doctor Who has had a fair few of these. Magnus Greel, played by Michael Spice, whose, quote, bent face is, it seems, as I said earlier, less offensive than John Bennett's yellow one. And then there's Shara's Jek in the Caves of Androzani, a more tragic figure than Greel, for sure, but the suggestion there is, again, that his facial difference is accompanied with, or has prompted, a mental disintegration as well. I am mad, Perry, he says, with clinical self-awareness. This man who was, to quote the script, once comely. Now, I wouldn't trade Christopher Gable's superb, sensitive performance, replete with primal angst and his graceful, balletic body language, for anything. It's one of the high points of Doctor Who villainy, Doctor Who acting full stop. But Doctor Who, at its best, is melodrama, and melodrama often deals with tropes, and the villain with facial difference sure is a trope. Of course, a good writer dealing with a problematic idea sometimes requires some self-imposed cognitive dissonance on our part. Caves and Talons are great stories, very well made, and so I compromise my righteousness because any misgivings I may have about certain elements are outweighed by the fact that these are smart people, clearly skilled artists, and we are talking about these complicated issues after a passage of time and some modern-day contemplation. And I have to be honest, as a young fan, a viewer, I didn't for one second worry about any issues arising from the masked villains of these stories. I cared whether I was scared or moved or excited. Even years later, when I spent a decade with a much milder, but nevertheless very noticeable facial blight of my own, I was a Talons and Caves fan. I had two very stubborn, visible, reddened, flaky patches of psoriasis on either side of my face for about a decade, until a brilliant consultant, much more in the know than my helpful but flummoxed GPs, declared it to be a slightly different type of another psoriasis that I struggled with on the less visible parts of my body, and a quick treatment or two got rid of it. Only when it was gone did I fully appreciate the freedom of not being self-conscious, of always checking my reflection to see if my face was white and flaky, or red and inflamed, or, if I'd been messing with it, weepy and raw. And people would stare. People would comment. Now, I'm not comparing myself to poor Joseph Merrick, the elephant man, whose face, which repulsed people, housed an inquiring mind and a gentle, kind personality. But we all have a universe of our own terrors to face, and I felt ugly and uncomfortable for most of my twenties. And I was on the end of more casual, minor unkindnesses than I care to remember, and it saddens me that part of my youth was blighted by something that was the first thing that people noticed about me, and it made me feel all itchy and sore and unclean. Uh, but I only mention this because this was a minor blemish that nevertheless elicited disgust, distaste or rudeness from strangers. I don't think it helped me as an actor either. You don't want to go casting that guy who might end up needing extra makeup or who, who looks distracting on camera. But I'm not going to start blaming it for any underachievement as that might let my other shortcomings off the hook. 
However, I mention it because it was a problem, a big one, an upsetting one. And I know that it is nothing compared to what others have had to go through. It is certainly infinitely worse for people with less fixable and more pronounced issues than I have ever had. And indeed, the idea of facial difference as a shorthand for evil has even prompted some pushback within the industry, which recently found itself addressing this with the I am not your villain campaign, which called for scars, marks and burns not to be used as a signifier of villainy in film and on TV. Only one in five people with visible difference, the parlance du jour for noticeable facial differences and disabilities at the time of recording, have seen a character who looks like them cast as the hero, said this research, with only 15% having seen such a person cast as a love interest. Being exposed to such everyday, non-positive representations is known to have an impact on mental health and the well-being of people with visible difference, who suffer from plenty of stigma all the time anyway, without our storytellers joining in as well. And whilst I have to confess to not being hugely uncomfortable with Jack or Greel myself, but this might purely be bias based on me liking the stories, I have to acknowledge that too. Some adjacent imitators are perhaps less helpful. Quillam in Vengeance on Varos, literally three stories after The Caves of Androzani, is an example of the law of diminishing returns, and despite a gloriously unctuous performance from Nicolas Chagrin, he is basically to be filed under Ugly Sadist, whose unmasking reveal is there for a shock moment and not much else. We are meant to be repulsed by the, in inverted commas, truly loathsome Quillam, whose horrible face is a reflection of his cruel nature. Less comfortable yet is the Borat a few stories later in Timelash. To use a word I resist that is too often banded around for my personal comfort, but in this case is definitely applicable, the Borad is certainly problematic. For the Borad is another in a long line of villains who see Nicola Bryant's beauty as an antidote to, the subtext says, their own visual shortcomings which, the subtext says, makes it worse for her because she's a pretty lady who'll have to shag someone with a messy face. God, subtext isn't half a bigot. They're not all disabled, Perry's admirers, although Mestor probably needs to get his eyes looked at, to be fair, but the Borad is a wheelchair user with a face which has been melded with that of a monster, and so it's almost like he's competing in the Who Can Be the Most Disabled and Villainous Olympiad 1986. Again, having your baddies look evil, it comes from a long line and we kind of get it. But for those who haven't seen Time Lash in a while, how does the Doctor defeat this enemy? Who, bear in mind, is an old friend who, we are told, used to be lovely looking. Well, one of the things about Carfell in Time Lash is that it has no mirrors. Why? Because the Borad hates how he looks so much, he hides them. Well now. We could be being told by the subtext, society judges people's looks so much, he has been made so self-loathing by that judgmentalism, by society. The judgmentalism of the supposedly nice, the inverted commas, the normal. Oh, that'd be smart, Mr Subtext. The band mirrors holding a mirror up to us to show us the ugliness of our own prejudice 
in our treatment of others. Except, if the subtext is saying that, which I very much doubt, it's being drowned out by the, um, the, uh, the, um, well, whatever the opposite of subtext is, the surface text, the denotation, in which our hero, Doctor Who, defeats his old chum by essentially saying, who'd want to shag you, certainly not my hot companion, you ugly prick, and then shames him back into the time vortex with what may as well be a chant of unalike, unalike, unalike. Whatever you do, she will always find you repulsive, says our hero. The possibility of perfect companionship shattered because of your grotesque, ugly excuse for a body. You're nothing, Borad, just a self-degenerating mutation. Nobody wants you, nobody needs you, nobody cares. Now, yes, he's being arch in order to force his enemy to retreat and so physically fall into the tinsel corridor of time doom. But it's a pretty mean act. And how do we rationalise that with our vision of a hero as a non-judgmental paragon of virtue? Um, I'll tell you later. From the work my other half does, it seems to me that once again the Doctor Who team will be at the forefront of quietly, and possibly sometimes loudly, angrily, or even joyfully, and sometimes all bloody three at once, getting more disabled talent on screen. Doctor Who, a trailblazer, who'd have thunk it? And what next, I hear you ask? A disabled lesbian donkey? Oh, I'm sure some wag will doubtless invoke that phrase. Well, do you know what? If there is any show where you can actually include a disabled lesbian donkey, and probably you can add from outer space to that too, then it's Doctor Who. Space police rhinos? Psychotic cat nuns? Yeah, lesbian disabled space donkeys ain't such a leap. And I've earwigged on meetings between my partner and her crew. Yeah, sometimes our house is full of disabled people. I, I listen to them, plotting. I don't think they want to nick your job or take over the world. I mean, why would you want to take over a world that is largely made up of buildings that you can't get into? But hopefully, one day, for disabled people to access the arts and see themselves represented on screen without having to kick up a fuss or be seen as being difficult will be a process of, in the words of that Ogron in Day of the Daleks, no complications. And those people who immediately see that casting of a disabled person as an imposition, as some kind of liberty, a uh, straying from the norm, well, they, or you, if that's you, are the very reason that these things need to be done, that representation needs to increase. The presence of differently shaped, sized and proportioned people needs to be, in inverted commas, normalised. Because they, too, have hands, not always the same number, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions as you. And they are fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer. And when my partner started up her charity to help get more visibility for disabled people in the arts, should I have been surprised? than amongst the very first people to sign up enthusiastically and to give their time were Marcus Wilson, Russell T. Davis and Andy Pryor. Of course not. They're all Doctor Who people. And Doctor Who is always there, leading the way. All it takes is some willingness and a desire 
to think outside the box, putting disabled people on our screens, opening the doors, or even widening them. All the downstairs doors in our house are, are extra large. As I said, you give these people an inch, and they require well, at least another three, otherwise the skirting boards are knackered. But it's not actually that complicated. Certainly not as complicated as trying to book travel and hotels with a wheelchair user in the 21st century. In Doctor Who terms, let's just say, not being able to get up the stairs should never be a barrier to world domination. Thank you for listening to Indefinable Magic. They can't get up the stairs, you know. Which was written and performed by me, Toby Haydoke. Thanks to some of the denizens of Patreonville who offered some thoughts and insights on an earlier edit which have proved useful to this final version. Alex Rowan, Richard Patey, Frank Shales, Joe Llewellyn and David Trainier. And of course to Shirley Houston, my disability ombudsperson. The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson and the music for Indefinable Magic has been specially composed and played by Dominic Glynn. I'm grateful to the patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Runar Brutig Olsen, Roland Moore, James Curay Smith, Ed Jefferson, Keith Say, Steve Herr, Robbie C, David Bickley, Tom White, Sean Ditchfield, Andy Kitching, Jim Trenowden, Legion Henderson, Reese Williams, Peter the Speaker, James Parsons, Tim Smith, Ronin, who is called Tom, don't know if I'm allowed to use your full name, Tom, DC, don't know anything about you other than those initials, DC. Robert Jewell, Mark Findlay-Smith, Damien Timmer, Ian Moore, Leanne Potts, Nick Salmond, Erica Lear, Sheila Moore, Jason Taken, Christopher Newman and Pete Lambert. you too would like to become a patron you can go to patreon.com forward slash toby one of the bonuses is getting your name read out like i did just then but you also get advanced releases extra material exclusives and pictures of my dog and you know access as well there's a there's an ama section that we have once a month that's at patreon.com forward slash toby which starts from as little as three pounds a month goes all the way up to gazbillions um i mean but yeah no you get all of the content at three pounds a month and that also comes with a 10 percent discount if you commit to a year in one go each of the tiers does uh, even the gazbillions one even though i've just made it up so whether you're a three pounder or a gazbillionaire please go to patreon.com forward slash toby which helps to keep these podcasts ad free it doesn't help to keep them ad free it justifies them being ad free because i do that anyway but um but this at least makes financial sense of it and look if you can't commit to a monthly obligation you can go to ko.com forward slash toby at any time 
if you've particularly liked an individual episode or if you've uh, had a particularly good week because I know that things are tough these days and prices are rocketing and we're all a bit stuck and I am just very grateful if we're connecting somehow by you listening to this stuff and I'm glad that it's of interest to you and you know that there are people out there who 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 are prepared to consume an hour-long monologue about disability representation in Doctor Who I mean that's pretty niche but there we go uh grateful to you for being out there but if you think there are others of your kind you'd really help me by doing something that costs you nothing at all which is to go to youtube patreon spotify wherever you get these podcasts and give them a five-star review and a few lines of description praise whatever so that people know what they're in for this helps to tweak our algorithms make them more noticeable uh, uh, amongst the very crowded market of uh, doctor who and indeed any other podcasts so uh, any sort of word out there and on social media is is really helpful uh, these podcasts have their own tweet they have their own tweet they don't have their own tweet they have their own twitter handle which is haydok podcasts at haydok podcasts haydok is h-a-d okay and i have my own at toby haydok where uh, alongside podcast content i also do the occasional a joke um, and plug my stand-up shows because i'm also a stand-up comedian at a comedy club called excess malarkey at excess malarkey which is every tuesday in manchester and uh, is uh, is always uh, a, a good night out for for a very low door charge we showcase the best comedians currently working in the country and i am the affable glue that uh, holds each show together on a Tuesday night at 8pm in Manchester at Excess Malarkey. Oh, this has already been a long one, so um, for the for the post-credits bit, I'll just go, thanks for listening. Um, I have run this by uh, Cheryl Lee and a couple of other people just to make sure I'm, uh, um, I'm not phrasing or... Uh, postulating or hypothesizing inaccurately, ill-advisedly or unnecessarily. And again, like with anything, my heart is pure. I'm, you know, putting stuff out there that I think is interesting. I don't, uh, and, and, and without any sort of level of judgment. And when you have no sort of judgment on these issues, I'm also not, you know, proselytizing or instructing. Uh, others to think or behave in a certain way i'm hopefully you know highlighting something hopefully mostly making some good jokes uh or you know at least smile inducing wry observations and uh but largely hopefully just you know it's ideas isn't it it's ideas and it's thoughts and uh and uh those do us no harm but they hopefully give us something to think about or at least to distract us from the world that as i speak is going absolutely <clears throat> i was going to say mental and or crazy but uh, i i would then have to chastise myself <laughs> under the terms of an argument i made about half an hour ago i'll leave it there Just about to do my 300th edit of this where I've tweaked it here, changed some terminology there, just double-checked or added or slightly snipped a bit here because I'm keen to get it right. And I'm just about to put this to bed. And I suddenly realised I haven't even mentioned my friend Gareth Berliner, who's a mate of mine, uh, who is the coachman 
in The Woman Who Lived, uh, who is also a well-known and respected uh, disabled performer, uh, comedian, actor, all sorts. Fortunately, I've interviewed Gareth and uh, haven't used that interview yet, so I'm going to use this little bit of a post-credits um, <laughs> um, sort of apology for not mentioning him throughout um, uh, to, to lead into that, which I will put out there at some point. So I haven't forgotten Gareth Bolina. In fact, I've let him speak for himself um, and will hastily put that interview together and out there at some point. Um, but, you know, this wasn't a list, uh, but it just amuses me that actually one of the people I know really well who would have been worth talking about, uh, I didn't. But I suppose that's also the key. That's why it's a lovely piece of casting, because he's just an actor in a show. And that's what it's all about.